just had a moment of reminiscence with Yvette. Um, the, the church that I came to know Christ in um, was the place that I first heard the song that we sang day by day together. Um, we didn't sing it in English. We sang it as Dia al Dia. Um, and so when I, when I hear and sing that song now, my memories go back to hearing Brother Costilla sing that um, and thinking about the promised land that he now enjoys as he's finished his race. Um, as the choir makes their way down, I uh, want to just let everybody know we have one more spot available for the Adventures in Marriage course. Um, so if you've been on the fence and debating, there's one spot left, um, and that can be yours just by going to the Church Center app and signing up for that. With that being said, turn with me to Luke chapter 1 as we continue working through Luke's gospel. Our message today begins in verse 26. And we'll read through verse 38 this morning. The word of God reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, on the house of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. And this morning, I've just been reflecting upon the fact that we humans are resilient creatures, aren't we? I mean, every time we turn around, there's another person who's pushing the known limits of our existence, showing us that there are new heights to be reached and more miles to be covered. And this past Monday, an Australian woman did something that has to do with miles that is extraordinary. Her name is Arcana Murray Bartlett. She finished a journey that took her around the entire perimeter of the continent of Australia. Doing so, you may not have read this, by running a marathon every day for 150 consecutive days. If you didn't know this, the distance of a marathon is 26.2 miles. So she ran 26.2 miles every day for just under half a year. Now think about that accomplishment and what it must have required of her. How many of you would think it an impossible task for you to simply run one mile just now? 
Some people train with the goal of running a single marathon in their life, and that's a worthy goal. Yet this Australian lady ran 26.2 every day. And in those five months of running, she says that she suffered sunburn and blisters and aches and bites from just about every insect under the sun. From beginning to end, her feet even swelled a whole shoe size. And thinking about uh, this, this feat, it's caused me to wonder. It's caused me to wonder, what are some of the most impossible things that I could imagine? There's a couple of them. I believe it's impossible for me to go up to the observation deck of the Tower of Americas in San Antonio and peer over the edge because I am glued to the wall. I'm afraid of heights. It's impossible for me to do this, okay? I believe it's impossible to have just one Lay's potato chip. (laughs) On some things that I thought were once impossible, my mind has changed. For example, I used to believe that it was impossible to make millions of dollars a year while just being mediocre at your job. But over the last few years, I've watched Jimbo Fisher do it at A&M, and so that actually seems possible now. You beat me at pickleball, and I had to get you back in some way. And this brings me to another impossibility. I'm not going to avoid tomatoes from Aggieland uh, today. What do you imagine to be impossible? I find that it's not difficult to make up a list of things that we believe to be impossible feats. But it's also unsurprising when someone comes along and they set their minds to making the seemingly impossible possible. And it follows then that our minds shift to seeking how we might go about explaining how those people made the impossible possible. You take that marathon runner that I've mentioned, we can explain her feet in rational terms by pointing to things like her extensive training. She's 32. She'd spent her entire life running. She's nearly made the Australian Olympic team on multiple occasions. We can explain her outlook, her mindset day to day as she began her day, as she describes her determination to push through her fatigue and aches and pains as she ran her course. We can look to her 5,000-calorie-a-day diet to know where she drew her body's energy from. It's not difficult to believe that the impossible has become possible when we put things in those terms. But what about when we can't explain things? What about when things happen outside the natural order? I'm asking this morning, what should we do with the miracles we've been told of? If we remember last week, we explored one miracle that Luke gives us account to in the first chapter of his gospel, and that's the miraculous conception of John the Baptist. And if you don't recall, the miraculous event involved a a faithful, elderly couple of Jews and their conception of a child. And while every child is an absolute gift from God, the, the child this couple will raise is the one who is to come in the spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah, serving as the, the forerunner of God's promised Messiah. And in God's timing, he found that, that he was moving to end a silent period by bringing this very special baby to this very faithful husband and wife. Yet I'll tell you, there are many a skeptic out there that would try to dismiss the miraculous nature of this event that God's word gives us, attempting to explain it away as something as rare 
but not conceivably impossible. Yet before us this morning is a series of absolutely unexplainable miracles that just overwhelm us. In our text, we see that God has chosen a woman to be the mother of the Messiah. Surely she must have been someone of great esteem, right? Surely any time God calls someone like to, to a, a special duty like this, they have to have come from some sort of special stock, right? Well, that's, that's one way that people try to make sense to God's blessing an ordinary Jewish girl known as Mary. They try to claim that she wasn't ordinary. And they do it by using descriptors of her, even like referring to her as the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so I want to take us on a little field trip this morning to discuss the other thoughts about Mary that exist out there in divine and the earth, particularly those thoughts that come from the Catholic Church that's taught about Mary. We need to know who Mary is not to understand who she is. And our Roman Catholic friends hold the Virgin Mary in very high regard. This is what is called the veneration of Mary. None of them would claim that they worship Mary, but they hold some beliefs about Mary that we do not hear. Now, I'm not sharing any of this. I want to be heard clearly. I'm not sharing any of this with any intent of being heard as desiring to issue some attack. That's not my purpose. I don't count myself among the group of Baptists who believe that all Catholics are lost. I happen to believe that there are some Roman Catholics who were born-again Christians. I'll even tell you, I am so broad-minded that I happen to believe that there are even Baptists who were born-again Christians, okay? And the reason I'm going to point out what Catholics teach about Mary is so that you can understand their beliefs and so that you can, you can engage intelligently with your Catholic friends. Now, don't miss my point. I don't believe that the Bible teaches these things about Mary that I'm about to describe to you. That it, and it gives us some fundamental difference when we understand them between Protestants and Catholics. See, one of the first things we have to understand that, that Protestants, like you and I, uh, affirm is that we believe in the principle of Scripture alone, the Bible alone. That is the source of our authority for instruction and the authority for our lives as we live them out. Catholics, conversely, believe the Bible in addition to the tradition or the teaching of their church. We're Bible only, they're Bible plus, if you want to look at it that way. They're taught to believe these things about Mary because it is the official stance of their church. I know in saying all of this, I may not win friends in the course of sharing this with you. But my job in, in, as the pastor of this church is to teach you what the Bible says and nothing more and nothing less. Now, I'll tell you, as, as early as the 5th century, Mary has, was given the title Mother of God. And because we believe that Jesus is God, maybe some of us don't have any issue with that particular title. But stemming from that, other beliefs about Mary have developed throughout the centuries. I'm going to give you three of them. The first is this. It's a belief that's known as the Immaculate Conception. Now, most people think when they hear about that, that it has to do with the conception of Jesus. But it doesn't. It speaks to the conception and birth of Mary. The Catholics believe Mary herself was born without any original sin and that she lived herself a sinless life. 
In fact, it was officially accepted as Roman Catholic doctrine in 1854 when the then Pope declared that from the first moment of her conception, these are his words, the Blessed Virgin Mary was kept free from all stain of original sin. I don't know about any of that. I do know what the Bible says, and I believe what the Bible says. And the Bible says that all have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God, and that includes everyone except for Mary's son, Jesus. And the belief that Mary was totally sinless all her life then gives way to a second, second doctrine that I want to share with you. It's this idea uh, that they refer to as the perpetual virginity. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was always a virgin, living a life of celibacy until she died, that she never had sexual relations with Joseph or any other man, never had any other children. It was taught that even the birth of Jesus did not violate Mary's virginity. There was an early monk whose name is Jerome. He stated it this way, Christ passed through the womb of Mary like sunlight passing through a window. That doctrine became prevalent when the Roman Catholic Church was also teaching that priests and nuns must also remain celibate. And several times the Bible teaches, in, in challenging this, several times the Bible teaches that Mary had other children. These would be other children who were the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. Same mom, different daddy. And Roman Catholics explain these passages away by saying, well, they're just cousins, extended family members. The third thing I want to point out is what's known as the bodily assumption. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that when Mary died, she was resurrected and she was bodily assumed into heaven, just like Jesus. And while, while Catholics had believed that for centuries, it didn't become official in the church until 1950, when the then Pope declared that the, again his words, the immaculate, perpetually virgin mother of God, after the completion of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into the glory of heaven. I hope you're listening carefully right now. Because I believe that if our Catholic friends are guilty of the veneration of Mary, I believe that we are also guilty of what would be called the devaluation of Mary. We're sometimes so reactionary that we go to the absolute opposite extreme of whatever someone else teaches. And because of the extreme emphasis on Mary and the Catholic Church, many would completely ignore her wonderful role in God's plan of salvation. What then does the Bible say about Mary? Well, we're first told that she's a virgin. And some would try to dismiss the, the, what's to follow with the idea of her being a virgin. Yet we know from the text that she's called a young girl who has never had sexual relations. Then she herself states plainly in verse 34 that she has never known a man in an intimate way. She was officially pledged to marry Joseph. It's not as the same as a couple being engaged today. Jewish betrothal was an official arrangement that had to be solemnized by a priest and can only be dissolved by death or divorce. If you like, the, the, the couple's officially wed. They're just not living together. And in the gospel accounts, Mary is seen as Jesus' mother who is faithful to support his ministry and is present at the cross when he's crucified. The last time in Scripture that we even encounter the name of Mary is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, when she's listed among the 120 disciples 
who were praying in the upper room. Gathered there along with her are Jesus' half-brothers. And it'd be wise and astute for us to observe that the disciples are praying with Mary, not to her. And I have a deep love and appreciation for Mary. I see Mary as an ordinary teenage girl who lived in the tough town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a town that served many soldiers and served many tradesmen because it was on an important trade highway. It had a reputation for being a corrupted village, and there weren't many virtuous women there. We know this, it's, this gets reinforced whenever Nathaniel first meets Jesus, and he says to Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But when the fullness of time had come for God to set his plan of redemption into action, the angels watched as he dispatched his angel Gabriel. And I'm sure upon that sending of Gabriel, the other angels must have thought, well, he's surely headed back to the temple in Jerusalem where he just visited Zechariah six months ago. But he bypasses the temple. And then they're looking on, they're saying, well, surely he's going to just maybe not go to the temple, but go to Jerusalem. It's, it's the city of God after all. But he passes right by Jerusalem. He even goes by Judea and he heads north towards Galilee. He heads right to the backwoods of the place. And they're thinking, is the guy lost? Did he get the orders wrong? But suddenly he reaches his destination. The destination being the simple room of a little girl named Mary. And he greets her with two powerful statements of assurance. The first is this, Mary, you have found favor with God. And you see, the nature of God's grace is that it is unmerited favor. Mary didn't earn this favor. She didn't deserve this favor. She was given it as a gift of grace. And that's a point of the story that we can appreciate that maybe our Catholic friends can't. I don't think that she was sinless. Scripture would not teach that. But I do believe that she was a pure young lady who loved God and had her heart set on serving him. I mean, all throughout the Bible, we see that God chooses ordinary people for special blessings. I mean, Paul is reinforcing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he tells the Corinthian church, God chose what is foolish to shame the, in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. God chose a stuttering shepherd named Moses who was a professional failure to go lead his people out of bondage. He chose a little shepherd boy, David, to go slay a giant. He chose a nameless little boy with five loaves and two fishes to feed a multitude. God even chose Balaam's donkey to deliver a message. He may still be doing that today, by the way. And as we focus on verses 31 and 34, we see yet another miracle when the angel Gabriel reveals God's plan to Mary. And it had to be mind-boggling. He tells her five things about God's plan with this boy, the first being that this boy will be named Jesus. Any of you remember when we were reading through Isaiah last year what God told Isaiah to name his son? It's in Isaiah chapter 8. Do you remember it? The name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. We ought to be thanking God every day that God didn't name his Messiah that. that. The name of Jesus rolls much easier off the tongue, doesn't it? The name of Jesus is so simple it fits on the lips of little children who pray at bedsides. The name of Jesus is so profound that it fits on the lips of elderly saints who were on their deathbeds. 
Leela Long has written a little chorus that's in our hymnal. We know it. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And he's just the same as his saving name. And that's the reason why I love him so. For Jesus is the sweetest name I know. The name in Hebrew is Yeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. But I just like to say it in English. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The second thing that the angel said was that he will be, Jesus will be, great. And that speaks to the nature of Jesus. In the, in the word, it's the word mega in Greek. Pastor John Piper writes about this greatness of Jesus. Jesus is 10 million times greater in every respect than the greatest men and women history has produced. If you took all the greatest thinkers of every country in every century of the world and you put them in a room with Jesus, they would shut their mouths and they would listen to the greatness of his wisdom. All the greatest generals would listen to his strategy. All the greatest musicians would listen to his music theory and his performance on every instrument. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do a thousand times better than the person you admire most in any area of human endeavor under the sun. Words fail to fill the greatness of Jesus. He's indescribable. So Gabriel leaves it, as, as, leaves it simple and he leaves it yet so profound. Jesus is going to be great. And next... Mary is told that her son would be called the Son of the Most High, which is just another term for saying that he would be called the Son of God. Then Gabriel announces that this son is to occupy the throne of his father, David. Mary was reassured that not only her son would be of the lineage of David, because she herself was, but that he would one day sit on the same literal throne upon which King David sat. Whereas the first three parts of the announcement have already been fulfilled, these last two parts are prediction that will be fully accomplished in the future kingdom that Jesus brings. Just as Mary was a literal virgin who would have a literal son, I believe that this is speaking of a literal throne. Finally, the angel announces that Mary's little boy would reign over the house of Jacob in an eternal kingdom. This was an amazing announcement in that it seemed Utterly impossible. I mean, think about it. Here is a young and obscure teenage girl, and God visits her and tells her that her son will be the Messiah. Translation her son is going to be the greatest man to ever walk the face of the planet Earth, and that he is going to rule forever. I don't know about you, but you ever feel like when your brain is melting, it's an overload? Mary had to be here at this point. And that's the way God works. He specializes in proposing God-sized plans that are totally beyond the scope of human ability. That's one of the best ways to recognize when God is working, by the way. Something's being proposed or something is happening that is totally impossible unless God is the one doing it. The problem for us is that many of us in our experience in our Christian walk is that we never move beyond the realm of what we can do for God in our own strength. You ever wondered why? It's because it's a lot safer when we believe we're in control. 
But when God gets involved in our lives and he removes the boundaries and he removes the, 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 the limitations of our human ingenuity and achievement, that's when we see him move and the impossible happens. You think in the business world today, there are lots of people who are commended because they're willing to risk new ideas and introduce new methods. These people are described as people who, who color outside the lines or they come up with a new paradigm or they, they knock down those, those walls or they punch through the glass ceilings, if you will. They intimidate those who would rather maintain and love the status quo. Those whose dying words are those expressions that maybe we've heard before, like, we've never done it that way before. Or trying to hold on would say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yet it's the nature and it is the character of God to do new and totally unique things. In announcing the coming Messiah, the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah. You find this in the 43rd chapter. See, see, I am doing a new thing. What is this new thing? I'm sending myself to come and save you. Thank God that he did something he hadn't done before. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a perfect, sinless Savior. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? The Lord asks. A virgin having a child. That's a new thing. That's a real miracle. And friends, God has a plan for your life that's totally awesome in its scope. And it's totally impossible for you to accomplish it on your own. But don't worry, because amid all these miracles, we also see that when God begins a work, God provides the power to get it done. You remember what Zechariah said when Gabriel told him that that he and Elizabeth were going to have a child? He doubted the whole thing. He showed his unbelief. He gets silence for nine months over it. But look at what Mary says in verse 34. She asks, How is this going to be? I'm a virgin. The grammar makes it clear that she doesn't show any evidence of doubt. She's sincerely interested in knowing how is this going to come to be? How's it going to be accomplished? We can learn something very important here. And the first thing to learn is that the wrong question is why? Why? That's the wrong question. But do you ever notice that that's always the question we want to ask first? I mean, Mary could have whined and said, why me, Lord? I mean, think about what she's hearing. Think about her and her day. I'm sure she thought about all the negatives of this thing. I mean, she's suddenly to be a single woman who's pregnant, right? And the social stigma that would have surrounded this wouldn't have been a really great thing for her to have to absorb. When we're facing facing changes in life, we always want to ask why. But the right question is how. How? Mary's sincere in her question. It was, as, it was as if she was asking, I don't have any doubt that God can do this, but I'd sure like to know a little bit more about how he's going to accomplish it. And Mary's maybe like some of us. It's okay to have honest and legitimate questions, and Gabriel doesn't criticize her for asking how. When you face the big experiences of life, a good question to seek an answer is, How, Lord? How? How can I cooperate with you to see uh, your power released? How are you going to do this so that you will get the greatest glory? 
You notice what God says? What does he say in response to this? Nothing's impossible with God. That's his answer. Gabriel gives Mary two kinds of information. First, he gives her a personal word about her her situation. And then he gives her and he gives us a general statement about God's power. Mary is understandably perplexed about how she's going to have a child when she's a virgin. And Gabriel reveals a little background to the tremendous, tremendous mystery of the Incarnation. He explains that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and God's power would overshadow her. This this picture of overshadow, it's absolutely beautiful. It's a picture, it pictures exactly what it says, a, a shadow moving over a person. You and I know that we cannot touch a shadow, we cannot feel a shadow, but we sure know when we are in the shade of a shadow. Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, when God created the universe, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the picture there is the Spirit hovering almost like a dove, overshadowing the lifeless void that existed before all creation. And in Hebrew, God says literally, light be, light be, that's what it says literally. And light became. And much the same was going to happen to Mary. The Spirit of God would hover over her, and God would gently say, Life be. And her reproductive system would find that life was conceived. But Gabriel also gave Mary a general explanation. Nothing is impossible with God. Now this is a good time to push a pause button and reflect maybe as a church family as well as individuals right now. Reflecting first on this church, with all the the Holy Spirit's activity and what we know is coming in growth in our area, is it possible that God has been calling us to focus on building and remodeling here for the future, but we've been caught in the perpetual cycle of why rather than pursuing how? Is it possible? I wonder. Reflecting on your life, is it possible that you sense God's plan, but right now you are clueless as to how it's going to happen? I'll tell you, it's God's plan for your marriage to stay together. I'll tell you, it's God's plan for you to live a holy life. I will tell you, it's God's plan for you to live the abundant life. It's God's plan for you to be with him in heaven when you die. I can go on and on. But when you reach the end of your possibilities and it seems like it's going to take a miracle, then you find where the God of the impossible is. You may be facing a terrible crisis in your life right now. I don't know what it is and the person in your pew may not know what it is. But there are two things in this passage that God may be trying to communicate to each of us and all of us. And they're this. Number one, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Number two, because nothing is impossible with God. I hope we're listening. Because whenever you find God's plan and you say, but it's impossible, congratulations. You're on the right track, maybe for the first time in your life, because God specializes in the impossible. I'll tell you a story. I remember attending a a lecture one day that was part of a, a long survey of the Old Testament. 
And when I say survey, I mean that it was a series of lectures that were just an overview of all the books of the Old Testament, and we were going to move through it very quickly, and all who attended the lectures would, as an outcome would have a general sense of what was happening in each of the books. So if you don't know what a survey is right now, what you should be hearing is a Bible study on steroids that you had to read a whole lot to stay up to speed with. Anyway, among all the books that were covered, the lecture I'm remembering involved us considering Jonah one day. Jonah's a great book of the Bible, by the way. It's one that we introduce to our littlest children when we read them the Bible because God tells us there in his word fascinating things. We're introduced to a reluctant prophet of God who tries to run from where God is sending him in the course of sailing the absolute opposite, opposite direction of where God is sending him. He gets tossed overboard and winds up being swallowed by a giant fish and staying in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. It's amazing. And that's just the first chapter. That's just 17 verses in. It's four in total. Read the other three this afternoon. You're not going to regret it. But anyway, the lecturer is explaining Jonah, and he begins to speak about how we go about interpreting the book. And he does so by inviting us to consider the literary genre of Jonah. And he tells us that it's important to understand this, because if we want to interpret it rightly, we have to know what it is. And so he begins to frame this by saying, that it's impossible for a man to survive in a, in a fish's belly at sea. And so he believes Jonah to be allegory. I did not say alligator, by the way. I said allegory. You may not be familiar with that word, but you are familiar with the concept. It's a story with a moral to it. It's a story that didn't truly happen, but leaves the listener understanding what the storyteller hopes what they should do in response to it. So the guy says this. And I decide as I'm listening to this, I'm going to be that guy in class. I'm going to be that guy. I raised my hand. I called upon, I was called upon, and, and I asked if, I, if the lecturer could provide some clarity to his comments. He says, well, which comments do you want clarity on? I said, the stuff about this being allegory. And he raises his eyebrow and he says, well, what's on your mind? And I said, well, I got a question and I got a, I got a, a statement. I got a point. He says, well, what's your question? I asked this. I said, are you a Christian? And the guy says, yes, I am. He's kind of offended by me asking that question. I said, great, I am too. Um, But let me get to my point. I said, my point is this in asking you this and wanting clarity. I said, I grew up on a little 12-acre farm off a road known as 463 in in, in South Texas where we raised all sorts of animals. I learned a lot growing up there. I learned a lot about hard work. I learned a lot about responsibility. I also learned that when something is dead, it's dead. I never saw a chicken. I never saw a dog. I never saw a goat. I never saw anything come back from being dead. Yet, in this class, I'm saying this, yet I stand before you and this group as a confessing Christian, believing that Jesus is God and that in him God entered into human history to live a perfect life and that Jesus died a death as a substitute for my sin. And now I'm staking my everything about me based upon this certainty that the most impossible thing that I could ever imagine taking place has. And that's the fact that Jesus, after he died, rose again. And so the point I'm making is that if God can do the seemingly impossible by raising the dead, a couple of nights in the, in, the, in the belly of a fish sounds like a cakewalk for God to me. 
And Christian, I wonder this morning, if it, 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 has God been telling you to do something? Because if he has, do it. In God's perspective, it's already done. Don't be afraid. God's already done the seemingly impossible in the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to do the seemingly impossible in you in raising you to life when the Lord returns. Do you really think that what you or do you really think what this church are being called to is too difficult for the God of the impossible? Do you? Maybe you're, you're not a Christian. Maybe you came here believing that you are beyond saving. Well, I hope through whatever you've heard this morning or in prior weeks, I hope you've learned that it is possible for you to be saved. But I do need you to know that's not going to happen without your permission. You must believe his word and you must surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. But that choice is yours. God ain't going to force you to be saved any more than he would have forced Mary to carry the Messiah. Look what she said. Let it be. Let it be. In 1883, the U.S. Supreme Court dealt with an unusual case. There was a, a case involving a man named George Wilson. He was a federal prisoner. He'd been sentenced to, to death row. He'd been arrested and convicted of mail robbery, and he was put on, on life uh, for putting the life of a mail carrier in danger. Then President Andrew Jackson offered Wilson a full presidential pardon. Wilson refused it. Jackson says, you don't have any choice. You're a free man. Get out. Wilson refused. and went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they made a landmark ruling. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, a pardon is a deed or a contract, if you like, the, the validity of which delivery is essential. Pardon has to be delivered to somebody. And delivery is not complete until it's accepted. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it is rejected, we have discovered, being the Supreme Court, no power in this court to force it upon him. What does that mean for you and I? The Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on that wicked man. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God's Messiah, Jesus, came so that he would take the punishment of your crime. And he is offering you a pardon for your sins. You're going to receive or reject that pardon. Here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus in that third chapter of John that we know one verse so very well. This comes in what follows that from verse 18. The the words of our Lord. Whoever believes in him, speaking of the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. And because he has not believed in the name of the only Son, of God. You believe? Will you receive your pardon? Friends, that's up to you. God's done the work. He's done the impossible. It's made a way for you and I. What keeps you? What keeps you from trusting? Let's pray.
God of heaven and earth, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you have done in the most miraculous of endeavors. Not just your conception of your son and an obedient, faithful girl named Mary, but he would make a way for lost sinners to return to you. That in Jesus, we know Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. And only by him can any man or woman come to the Father. Lord, we thank you that that way has been made, that that path has been cleared. We thank you that that path goes through that cross and that your son was ever so ready to go through it for us. Lord, I pray that we would commit ourselves to follow that cross-carrying way of the master and that we would make much of him in all that you do in our lives. I pray this for his sake and and in his name. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand. As Brother Scott leads us in a hymn of invitation, what are you being called to this morning? Are you being called to trust upon Christ and to salvation? Are you being called to join this church in membership? Is he leading you to leave some aspect of burden here and trusting it to him as impossible as it may seem? Won't you come and leave that with him? Won't you turn to him this morning? We lift our voices. We lift-